0: That we love to chat, we love to help and that's a fact, so we have made it our mission to find stuff out, from diagnosis and education, it out of your frustration, chat to folks who been there too, collect it together and share it with you, if you do know someone we should speak to, send them our way and that's what we'll do, we like to have our sensory netter, you know what?
1: Hi everyone, it's Jenny here. We have another Sensory Matters show, and today I am chatting to Rachel Gartland, who is an occupational therapist specialising in sensory processing disorder and uh, children's occupational therapy. Is that a good sum up of what you do, Rachel? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and it's a private practice you have, isn't it? Yeah,
0: um, so... I'm actually just a self-employed occupational
1: therapist.
0: Okay. Um, I've given myself
1: a company name. Okay, fair enough. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you following this, then you've got your website and you're on Facebook. Um, Your Facebook is Blossom Children's Occupational Therapy. Yes. And your
0: website is? um, My website is... um, childrensoccupationaltherapy.org.uk fantastic okay
1: so um how, how on earth did this like did you always want to be an occupational therapist did you always want to do the children's side kind of talk us through your your history and how you've ended up where you are today okay um so
0: initially as a young child um i had quite a high interest in helping children in the class that were struggling um and I was keen to help other children that sort of had any d- disabilities or anything that they found difficult. Um, I also had a cousin that with autism and I enjoyed helping her and had quite a good bond um, was, and enjoyed communicating with her. Okay. Um, so I then went on to do some work experience in special schools. Um, and whilst doing that, I then learnt the role of different professionals within that within schools that worked with children with disabilities. Um, And I was keen on speech therapy and occupational therapy. Um, So I went and did some experience individually with those professionals and decided occupational therapy was for me.
1: Right. What is it that appealed about it?
0: Um, So I liked the fact it was very varied. Um, Every day would be different, and every child was very different. And I liked the fact that actually it was looking at things that everybody takes for granted um, and helping children that struggle with those things to be able to do things that, you know, we find quite easy or um, other people just do naturally and don't think about that.
1: Okay. Okay. And then obviously you've kind of developed a bit of an interest in the, the sensory processing side. Would you say that's your main, is that the bit that excites you the most or you find most engaging for you? Um, yeah,
0: I I like all of the areas really to be honest. So um I cover a vast range of um children with physical disabilities or neurodevelopmental or those conditions are also unknown. Um and I actually enjoy all of the areas, but what I've found is that the sensory is something that impacts on most of the children that I'm seeing. So okay. actually even those with physical disabilities, um they're quite often missing out on movement opportunities if they're in a wheelchair, that sort of thing. So um, I've found that it actually has a big impact on lots of children okay. and taken a direction really for me.
1: Right. OK. So in terms of so you, you kind of use sensory processing to the benefit of maybe physically disabled people by putting sensory input, I suppose. Is is that what you mean in that sense? And then obviously the the ones that find sensory input more challenging and how you You manage that? Or have I misunderstood?
0: Um, So so basically, um, with any child, rather than looking at the condition, I suppose what I'm saying is I um, look at all the underpinning skills that they need to be able to do something. So um, what is often found is that actually those core sensory um, processing skills aren't well developed or integrated. Um, And then what then happens is it makes it very difficult for children to build upon those skills. So um, the sensory integration is actually seen as being the foundations of learning. Mm -hmm. So without those being solid and integrated, it's very difficult for children to then build upon those skills and build up higher level skills as well. So regardless of what the condition is, Um, it's for me it's about looking at why it is that that skill is difficult so um, if if a child is in a wheelchair or has a physical disability that's um, holding them back from something actually it could be a number of reasons but quite often there will be a sensory element to that as because um, they're lacking out on the movement opportunities that we might otherwise be gaining
1: okay that makes sense so what, what would you say are the most common sensory integration challenges that you come across?
0: Um, the most common ones that I'm coming across is uh, children that are struggling with the reactivity of the sensory information. Um, so I'm coming across a lot of children that are struggling with the textures of touch and um, And that particularly impacts on their self-care skills. So um, there's lots and lots of children that I'm assessing where the families will say to me, um, for example, they don't like labels in their clothes. Um, Little girls don't like tights and the sensation against their skin. Um, You know, socks can be an issue because of the seams of the socks near their toes. Um, So lots of things related to clothing really which will has a big impact then on their ability to do their self-care skills Um, also things like when they're washing or having to do their teeth they don't like the sensation of the toothbrush or they might not like the sensation of the toothpaste in their mouth or the hairbrush on their head um, the sensation of the water in the shower or using a sponge so uh, generally the self-care area that I come across a lot that's challenges usually because the child can't tolerate different textures of um, different sensations of touch sorry yeah
1: okay yeah there the, seems the to I want to come back to, to touch because it's a, a common one that I know people have real challenges with and how you how you handle that I suppose we'll come back to that but I'm also interested in what you personally see how you personally see sensory processing challenges because Seems to me when I talk to people, um, professionals and things, that they don't see it as anything separate. You know, it's always attached to autism or, or something else. It's not really diagnosed separately in its individual right of just having challenges with sensory processing. But from what you're seeing, what you're saying is that you see it in a, in a complete range of situations and disabilities and challenges. Um, so how, how do you view it? Do you think it's a separate thing in its own right or do you think it's always attached to something else? Um, I th- So I think
0: what you mean by that is um, in the UK it can't be diagnosed as a disorder yeah. uh, so lots of pre- professionals in the UK will be saying actually sensory processing disorder isn't a real disorder um, and it, you can't diagnose it as a standalone disorder which is why it becomes part of um, a sub-diagnosis of autism, for example. Yeah. The sensory processing is now covered as part of that, um, but actually you can, so within the UK as OTs, we're allowed to identify children with sensory processing difficulties, but the, um, the issue is that we're not allowed to diagnose it as a disorder because it's not in the diagnostic manual. So I see many children that have sensory processing difficulties and that can be their only you know that is the standalone thing um, but actually it's not a valid diagnosis on its own okay uh, so there, there is also lots of children that might later on be diagnosed with other conditions as well mm-hmm. uh, but usually the sensories uh, can be identified first um, but there are, there's also other children that you know actually they don't have a diagnosis but generally they haven't um, they don't have integrated um, use of their senses and so what then happens is you see things like difficulty with motor skills or um, functional difficulties and that's when they're then identified so in answer to your question it can i, I do see it on its own um yeah. as difficulty but obviously it's not it can't be labeled in the uk as a disorder so in america it's um all the research is labeled as a disorder but actually in the uk it's not yeah okay yeah.
1: Do, do you see that as, as a good thing or a bad thing, or do you see it ever changing, or do you just not think it matters?
0: Um, I think that's very difficult for families because actually <laughs> it causes a lot of hindrance with many aspects of a child's life. Mm-hmm. And because it isn't a diagnosable disorder, families come across a lot of hurdles with trying to get support. Yeah. Um, also, they, you know, in things like education, health, care plans, mm-hmm. actually, that can be. Um, it can cause some difficulty because it's it's questioned as well, what is this? You know this isn't a, this isn't a known label as such. It's not a known disorder. So it then causes um, some difficulty with trying to get the right support. but actually it's something that can have a significant impact on everything that a child is trying to achieve, whether that be school, home, um, you know general friendships and playing, anything really.
1: Yeah, okay, that's interesting i wonder if there's a movement to try and um get it recognized as a condition in its own right and a, and a diagnosis um because just i just hear you know lots of people talking exactly like that that there aren't the other comorbidities that you might expect it is just the child i say just because it's a big thing has sensory processing challenges um and exactly what you're saying they don't they don't feel it's validated they don't feel supported because it's not recognized
0: yeah And the thing that we're seeing um, as occupational therapists, we're seeing a lot more of that now, because actually there's a reduction in uh, physical and sensory play, so so many children now are on iPads and there's so many screens available, that actually we're seeing a real reduction in um, general skills. Lots of children now start school without being able to hold a pencil and without without having the foundation skills that they need in order to be ready to learn. that is because they're not out climbing trees they're not out in the mud digging and playing on the streets like previously and actually lots of children now are play. you know lots of plays just quite sedentary um you know quite still there's a lack of movement yeah. um of exploring that kind of thing so that has a own impact on all children really
1: yeah absolutely okay Um, So going back to touch, which is such a big one, and that sensation of uncomfortable clothes and labels on your clothes and seams and all the rest of it. And I know that most people's solution is cut out the label, um, try and find seamless socks, which is obviously one solution. Do you have any other tips, things that people could do when when faced with maybe a – because I think, you know, it – it's a real sensation of feeling very very uncomfortable which can create real anger in that person very angry outbursts um and that's fine once once you're like three four five maybe six but once you get to seven eight nine ten it becomes less acceptable to behave that way so how how do you integrate those people in those situations to, to cope with everyday life of having to wear socks um so the main
0: sort of Um, strategies that tend to work for these children is using lots of deep pressure. Okay. So the deep pressure touch actually can help to override some of those sensations. Um, So the the touch system is linked in with a fight or flight response, which is why we see an anger outburst or, um, you know, sudden anger. Um, But actually by doing lots of deep pressure touch and massage type things, Um, over the areas of the body, that can be really helpful in reducing then some of the sensitivity afterwards. Uh, So what lots of families find helpful is doing things like um, squishing the body with a gym ball, so child lays on their tummy with their arms out and their legs out, um, and just doing deep pressure along the body with a gym ball. doing that before getting dressed or before any sort of uh, self-care task can be helpful. Um, using heavy-weighted um, equipment can be helpful as well to, to provide some desensitising, um, and also lots of proprioception, so any sort of push and pull type activities, um, doing lots of heavy work before you're doing the um, tactile okay. uh, activities can be really helpful as well. So building those into a routine and like a daily uh, routine before getting dressed, for example, can be really helpful then at, um, helping a child to be calmer when they're going into that situation. Mm. So if you're feeling very anxious and worked up about it because they know what's coming, then actually it's they're, better, they're in a better place when they're calmer yeah. um, to be able to tolerate that input.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: And we're going to take a quick break to tell you about this week's special offer. If you go to our website, www.chewygem.co.uk and purchase a green skull pendant, you can get a Chewy Gem lanyard for free. Just enter the code Lanyard at checkout. And don't forget, if you need any help and support, you can join our sensory support group on Facebook. Now back to the podcast. Mm -hmm.
1: any tips for for sort of school in that sense because I'm thinking of one one child I know who um, has a thing more about shoes than socks actually that the shoes have to be certain certain tightness and even on both feet if that makes sense um so they spend quite a lot of time adjusting their straps to get the, the that perfect and then when they go to school and they're having to have maybe indoor gym and change to the plimsolls that becomes very challenging for them because they're upset about changing their shoes, which they've got right. Um, yeah. So are there any kind of practical tips for, for school in terms of how how a child could have some tools to help themselves in that situation?
0: Um, yeah, so doing lots of um, physical activity again before changing into those shoes would be helpful. So lots of things that involve like jumping and Uh, like stomping around and skipping, that kind of thing, where you're going to get an impact to the ankle and the foot um, will be helpful. And just um, building up different sensations on the foot as well and teaching the child to uh, squeeze along the foot before putting their shoe on would also also be helpful. Um, But what generally works well is actually um, if the child is able to know what is coming and can predict that... Able to cope better with it. So knowing exactly when they would be needed to change, you know, what time is that on the clock, or how long is left before you're going to be doing that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is making sure they always do it themselves as well. So rather than somebody else doing things for them, it, um, the sensory input is always easier to tolerate when the child is in charge of that. When they've, um, you know, they've been in control themselves.
1: Yes, that
0: makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So moving on from touch, then, which is the other main sense, I suppose that that you see people having challenges with.
0: Um, probably uh, probably proprioception actually. Okay. Um, so lots of ch- uh, probably proprioception, and then also vestibular. I would say, um, so that's about your sense of movement and body awareness. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, a lot of children struggle um, with things like their posture, postural control. Um, so there's lots of children in the classroom where you see, you know, they're slumped and holding their head up, or they're sitting in the chair and they're not actually sitting upright, um, or they're struggling with really basic motor skills because they haven't got that core strength um, or the ability to maintain posture. So. Um, that seems to be have a, quite a high impact because it has a big impact on attention um, in the classroom, but it also has an impact on motor skills. If you're not, you know, if you're not able to sit upright and you're um, you're not in a good posture, then your fine motor skills will have an, that will have an impact on those, and ha- especially handwriting. Um, so that's probably another one that I see, and it's probably one that's more of a concern to school than it is at, to home.
1: Yeah. So um, how, how might that present to you that sort of situation? As in, how do you get someone that comes? You know, you you identify? Do you identify it because it's not as obvious for home, or yeah? You know, how does it come up? I suppose. Um, it would usually come up
0: if the child um, if the family have requested an assessment for another area, mm-hmm. uh, like for example, that their five motor skills are poor, or if a school has called me in because they can't get the child to move on with their handwriting, and actually then it's identified well, first of all, they need to be able to sit up. And they need to be able to have the right posture in the chair um, or schools might say he's always fidgeting or she's always fidgeting and moving in the chair um, the other thing that can be a big issue is if these children haven't got their feet grounded so um, quite often in some in some environments the children will have their feet dangling mm-hmm. and actually then that reduces their awareness of their body um, but it also means that they're relying a lot more on their balance so um you know they're not grounded and feeling stable so therefore they're not able to use their hands so i always try and say to teachers because they don't always understand the impact of that sometimes yeah. um be an issue actually if you were trying to sit and balance on a, a wall and then complete some handwriting would you find that easy um so it's a similar kind of um you know that's how it represents to a child really yeah. especially if they're a child that's struggling with those senses anyway yeah um, then that just makes it even more increased
1: difficulty yeah that makes sense it's something I've not thought of but it does make total sense how much impact posture has on all the other tasks
0: yeah, yeah. Um, so it also has a big impact on attention um, and actually if the child isn't able to attend and focus on what they're doing mm. then they're going to be putting in their full effort either so that's the other side that you see
1: absolutely but you mentioned their fidgeting as well, which is obviously a, a you know a common thing. Um, yeah. and also certainly within the autism spectrum, fidgeting can also help concentration. Is that something that you see?
0: Yeah, so I think it will depend on the reason that they are fidgeting. Um so often by observing that you can understand the reasons why they might be fidgeting, um, some children will fidget to increase their awareness of their body so it gives them more feedback Uh, they could also be doing it because actually the texture of something around them is uncomfortable so they're not tolerating the texture Um, they might do it to gain um you know more feedback so um by fidgeting actually that will um help the vestibular system to have a good understanding and increase the upright posture um so there's there's quite a number of reasons why a child might fidget yeah Uh, but actually Uh, sometimes fidgeting can be helpful for some children so um in that situation a sit and move cushion works very well um an air blown cushion air filled cushion that the child can sit on and that just gives them movement and some feedback there but actually they're not physically fidgeting and getting up from their seat so um little strategies like that can work quite well
1: yeah it must be really hard to identify when that fidgeting behaviour is beneficial, and when it's not?
0: Yeah, um, it can be, but I think when you're in a classroom situation, you can, it gives you a good, under, you can have a good um, interpretation really of, is that child still able to attend or is that hindering their work? Yeah. Uh, and actually that's a good way of knowing whether or not you need to try and alter that behaviour and um, put some strategies in place, because, you can see the impact that has on them being able to participate in the class
1: yeah um, and another one that i know um lots of people struggle with this is um sound um and you know it can be that it's just well i, I think it's interesting how how people's senses can be it varies day to day. To say that somebody's got a thing about hearing or socks or shoes, then the next day they might actually handle that way better than the day before. And it's, I, what I see is very variable. I don't know whether yeah. you see the same. Um, but so for, I'm thinking of um, people who are maybe in the classroom and their shoulder partners chatting to them. And just on this particular day, they kind of, kind of really feel it in their ear. They almost feel the vibrations on the side of their ear and that it's very irritating to them um stuff like that which must happen regularly and day in day out normal thing that people have to face how how can people find a strategy to manage that um i think with that i think actually um it's looking
0: at the whole situation and the environment because how i explain that is it's a bit like a coke bottle effect um So if a child is particularly stressed and is tired or poorly, um, or they've had lots of other things that they're struggling to tolerate that day, um, that all is like being a Coke bottle being shaken. And so it might be that actually one day, the coke bottle hasn't been sh- shaken yet, so they didn't like that noise, but they could tolerate it. Yeah. Um, but on the next day, actually, it might be that they've already taken lots of shakes to that coke bottle, so that noise was the final straw for them, and actually, then the coke bottle explodes. Yeah. Um, so you've got more resilience, and you're able to tolerate the input a little bit more easily, even if you still don't like it. Um, if you're um, you're not so anxious, and you're all your sort of nutritional needs are met um you're not tired so basic um fundamental things within life yeah. um will have an impact on it. so um you know if a child is having to put up with lots of things that are stressful that morning then they might not cope with that alarm that goes off later in the day mm. but if actually they've had a calm, a calm morning um and everything's been very routine based that they can cope with and everything's
1: you know being tolerable
0: then they might be able to cope better with that alarm that happens later in the day
1: yeah does that make sense yeah that makes total sense because we're all like that aren't we if we're tired and exhausted and whatever else or just not ourselves then our own tolerance of everything is is reduced isn't it so it's no different um really if yeah sensitivity yeah yeah
0: No, it's exactly the same scenario, really. And actually, um, so ensuring that you've met all those other needs, um, ensuring that the child is, um, you're meeting their sleep needs and the nutritional needs the best you can, um, and you're reducing any other anxiety will help them cope better Mm -hmm. than with other sensations that they can't as easily Mm -hmm. tolerate. Um, The other thing is, um, lots to ask me about ear defenders. Mm. Um, ear defenders can be very helpful in certain situations for children, um, but what I always recommend to families is you, you do need to be mindful that the child shouldn't be wearing them for a long period of time. Um, so I have met some families where nobody's advised the family and they have been wearing ear defenders all day. Right. Um, and although that child might be highly stressed by noise, actually, then you're going to alter what their brain perceives as being a, a normal level of sound. Yeah.
1: Um.
0: So it's really important. It's really important in terms of. Um, you know how they're processing that information that they only wear those ear defenders when it's necessary so it might be that a child doesn't cope in the dinner hall mm-hmm. um, so you let them wear them in the dinner hall but then you they have them taken off afterwards or they might have them in a tool bag so they're there if they need them but they don't necessarily automatically put them on um, because as well it also has a big impact especially on younger children Um, there's a big impact on communication and, you know, how they're able to communicate with others as well. So it's really important that um, they are only used at certain periods
1: when they need to and then they're removed. Going back to what you were saying about touch, that if if to help with shoes and socks, rubbing almost desensitises it, I suppose, in in preparation for that, that if you cover your ears all the time, then your ears are never going to be used to the sounds around you. So to use them when it's really necessary makes total sense. But also giving your ears the exposure to natural sounds that everybody has to cope with makes sense totally. And also um, in sort of preschool age children,
0: I've seen an impact then on their speech and language when they have worn them for too long. Um, So it's really important in terms of their communication and the way they're actually hearing and processing sounds that they do have some um, exposure to what is seen as being normal sound.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And on, on the sound thing then, imagine you're in a situation where you are in the dinner hall, you haven't got your ear defenders with you. The Coke bottle has been well and truly shaken that day, and you can feel yourself going, ah, and, and that you're going to blow. Is there anything that can be done to prevent that? Um, usually, again, doing the thing,
0: um proprioceptive heavy work activities um, okay. or using things like a weighted lap pad on your, on your legs can be helpful. Okay. Um, because just trying to have any input that's going to help the body calm down will help to just generally desensitise some of the senses. So um, if that's particularly challenging time for you, then it might be that you have certain s- tools and strategies that you know work mm-hmm. and you can take them into that scenario. Or what works well is um, if you know that there's a set thing that helps a child to calm down, then you have sort of a list or some visuals of these are the things that help the child to calm when the child is becoming anxious or um, prone to a meltdown and then they've almost got these um, you know equipment or ideas on them that actually in those scenarios they can go to so it's like a visual prompt as okay that you're feeling like that now so let's do this or let's do that Um, so usually um, that's that can be a very individual thing so different things will calm different children according to what senses they rely on and what senses they use as a as a calming um method really um but on the whole most heavy work activities will calm most children yeah. um so again anything where you get in the push and pull sensation so it might be um so for example a child i'd worked with struggled with eating in the dinner hall and the school were trying to help him to be included within that. Um, So to gradually build up towards that, he had um, 10 minutes before lunchtime where the school did lots of heavy work things. So he did monkey bars outside. Um, He, he then um, did lots of like jumping and uh, gym ball activities in the corridor. He would push the heavy, um, heavy trolley of all the um lunch boxes and drink bottles into the hall because that was then pushing the trolley and then that actually helped him to cope with and tolerate the hall just for 10 minutes Um, doing things like that beforehand can be part of a daily routine and scheduled in um, but it will help to calm the nervous system down before you're in that situation
1: fantastic so in your experience do you find schools in the main are pretty receptive to interventions like this um, yeah, most
0: schools are. Um, I have come across a few that aren't. <laughs> um, but the majority of schools are actually really grateful for any advice and support. So um, I I actually feel quite sorry for schools in because I feel like now they have such a big role in supporting children yeah. and they've got so much more than just educating a child to do and they end up with all these different therapy plans from different therapists um, and all different interventions they're expected to provide to children with very little resources sometimes. Um, So actually things where it can be built into the day that don't you know don't need an extra member of staff or don't need extra funding for equipment like pushing a lunch trolley Mm. they're really grateful for because actually that's something they can easily put into practice and it's not going to cost them extra money and it's also something that's going to make their life easier because they're then able to help the student and they haven't got to eat lunch in a different area for example
1: yeah interesting about the the change though that you know schools are doing so much more than they used to do Or are expected to do so much more than they used to do? Do you have any ideas on why that is?
0: Um, I I fear it might be because there's lots more NHS cuts. Mm -hmm. Um, So it appears to be that actually less children are entitled to therapy through the NHS. Um, Less children are actually because of funding and and budgets, actually there's less um, opportunities for them to receive the input from a professional that would usually have done that. Uh, So now it's left to the school with a programme or a a plan that they have to then follow and it's reviewed or a member of staff from another team will come in and review that and update it. But it, it helps to, you know, it's less money and less funding that's needed then so not on the school's part but on other areas so that seems to be how it's happened Um, and then school you know have a really big responsibility to do lots of other things so it can be very difficult for schools seeing behind the scenes Um, but at the same time it's very frustrating for parents who just want the right support for their child and actually they feel like every hurdle they get to they've got to fight for everything so But I can see both sides being on both sides of it. It can be difficult both ways. But generally, schools are are quite happy. I meet lots of schools. And um, I mean, I've even got a few commissions now with schools where the schools are actually paying me to support the whole school. So uh, in my private service for so many hours a week, Um, And then I do a whole school approach where I recommend actually in this classroom, for example, none of the children can touch the floor. So you need these chairs or that boy over there might need a pencil grip. Um, So real basic
1: strategies that just help the whole school. And that's been really effective as well. Brilliant. And I would imagine just having someone that has the time or your or the focus to look at all of those things is so beneficial because all the staff in the school are busy doing their job, which is you know teaching, supporting, management, whatever their job is. So, to have someone in just to go, do you know what, I can see everything quite clearly and objectively, do these things, it will make a big difference, must be great.
0: Yeah, and actually, um, the schools that have done that have seen a really big impact, so yeah,
1: it's bit. beneficial yeah (coughs) excuse me right I've got one more thing to ask you about before we finish up so we've I know we've not covered all the senses and I could talk to you for ages because it really is fascinating in terms of the different things that can help slightly related to touch I suppose but also to taste which is another challenge that lots of our community face are restricted diets um, because people will only tolerate either very bland tasting foods or certain textures really aggravate them and I think for parents, that can be a real worry because obviously nutrition's so important for the growing mind and, and body. Um, do you have any tips that they could... Oh, did we lose you there? I think you're back. You missed half of that, what oh, you said. You? Okay, I'll go again. So the, the other bit that I wanted to ask about was um, touch and taste. It's another one that we hear a lot of people struggle with. And for parents, it's a particular worry um, because obviously nutrition is so important to the growing mind and body, but quite often the texture of food isn't tolerated or the taste of food isn't tolerated, leading to a restricted diet. Um, Are there any kind of like a a final tip you could offer people that maybe they could implement at home that would help with that?
0: Um, I think the main thing that I generally find um, in terms of what helps with food and the eating is that... Children will try more food when they don't feel forced into it. So it's very difficult for a parent who is feeling quite anxious about meal times because they know of um, the difficulty they're going to face. Um, it can be difficult for them not to actually show their own anxiety, which children generally can pick up on. Um, but when a child is feeling like they have got to eat something or, you know, there's no choice about it, their anxiety increases, and when their anxiety increases, their senses heighten as well, which makes it more difficult. Um, So what I've found with a lot of families that has been the most beneficial thing is that if they do a plate of food that the child they know is happy to eat and then just have one other thing on the table in a separate pot, um, and they say, you know, if you want to smell it or try it, um, and just let them smell it, touch it, But there's no pressure at all to eat it. Actually, then children, off their own accord, will might smell it one day, put their tongue on it the next day, Um, and over time, parents have found that actually now the child will eat those things if it's gradually introduced. So um, that seems to be the most beneficial way. Just having one item of food that you know they're not so keen on or they've never tried, yeah, putting it on a separate plate, but. It's up to you. It's there if you want to look at it. But if you don't, it's fine. And over time, if you persevere with that, that seems to be really helpful in helping children. The other thing is, um, you know, having the weighted lap pad on your lap can be helpful. Yeah. Um, sure the child is at a table where their feet touch the floor and they're feeling grounded and secure in their sitting, first of all. Yeah. Um, that can be helpful because if the child struggles with their balance and they're on a chair and their legs are dangling, which is often with lots of dining tables, uh, they feel like they're going to fall off the chair, then already they've got a heightened level of anxiety before they've even started trying the foods they don't like. So just making sure those basic things are met first.
1: Great. Brilliant. Really useful. Well, thank you very, very much. It has been so good talking to you. Do you have any kind of like final parting message you want to send to the world um i don't don't, know you don't have to have one don't worry if you've not got one (laughs) okay what area of the country do you cover um i cover
0: um so i'm i'm based around the midlands but i'm i cover um northamptonshire and um some of cambridgeshire so sort of peterborough area uh, bedfordshire a bit of leicestershire as well so um generally the surrounding counties of northamptonshire right. um i'm so busy i don't go further afield because i don't need to
1: yeah fair enough okay well that's brilliant um so if anyone wants to get in touch with you um it's blossom children's occupational therapy on facebook or children's occupational is that right Yes. Yeah. yeah, got it. Excellent. So yeah, you'll, you'll get Rachel in either of those places and her numbers on her Facebook page, etc. Um, and I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. So thank you very, very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you well that's it for this week and thank you once again for listening we really do appreciate it if you've got time and you can spare 30 seconds then go and give us a five-star review on itunes it really helps other people find our content and we know that our content and our episodes are so helpful to our community with lots of hints and tips and interesting interviews so go and do your kind deed of the day and leave us a five-star review on itunes to help others find us also so that you know never miss an episode and you get a notification when a new one is available why not hit subscribe and that way you'll never miss us finally if you're not already a member of our fantastic facebook support group i suggest you go join it we'd love to see you in there there's loads of fantastic chat lots of peer-to-peer support from people in the same boat as you so go and search on facebook for the chewy gem sensory support group and let us know what you're thinking of our episodes speak to you then bye (coughs)